and a warm welcome from Waypoint Church Online. I'm Claire, one of the leaders here. It's great that you're joining us wherever you are. If you haven't introduced yourself to us yet, send us a message from our website as we'd love to connect with you. Again, last week, Ian Coffey started our new four-week discipleship series called Pressing On, which is taken from the Book of Philippians. Ian is the Vice Principal and Director of Leadership Training at Morelands Bible College, and it is a real honour to have him taking us through this series. Good morning. It's good to be sharing with you again at, uh, at Waypoint. Through these Sundays in March, we're looking at four themes from the letter written by Paul, the Christian Apostle, to the church at Philippi. Uh, the reason for that is your theme verse for this year as a church family comes from that letter, Philippians chapter 3, verse 14, which says, I press on towards the goal to win the prize. And so we're thinking about pressing on. Last week, we thought together about pressure and how to face it when it comes into our, our lives and threatens that desire to press on for all that God has for us. And this week, we're going to be thinking about partnership and why we need it. Now, partnership is one of those Christian words that you think you'd be mad not to think it was a good thing. Today is Mother's Day, the traditional name Mothering Sunday, and uh, most of us have look back with great joy to the love that we've received from our own mothers. Not true for everybody, but for many, many of us today, we, we give thanks. And really in a way, partnership's a bit like motherhood. Why, would, why wouldn't you want to be supportive to celebrate and thank those who, who are mothers? But I wanna dig down a little bit deeper because you see, on the surface, although partnership sounds like a really Christian virtue, it's a difficult one to achieve. And Paul knew it was difficult for the church at Philippi, as we'll see as we look at scripture together. There are three particular lessons about partnership that I think come out of Paul's letter. And uh, I want to think about those with you for a few moments this morning. Here's number one. The first lesson about partnership is it's based on our relationship with the Lord Jesus. If you've got a Bible, I want you to look at the way Paul begins uh, his letter in chapter one of Philippians and just picking it up in verse three. This is what he says. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. So that's where we get that word cropping up, because of your partnership in the gospel. What Paul's basically saying is this, because you have come to know and love Jesus in the way that I have come to know and love Jesus, that makes us family. I know uh, as a pastor how often I've looked around the congregation and thought to myself, do you know, if it wasn't for Jesus, none of us would meet up because of our backgrounds, our ages, the things that we're interested in, our culture, our ethnicity, whatever it might be. 
just looking around church, often on a Sunday morning, I, I would be just staggered and think, how else would we come together if it were not for Jesus? And that's what Paul is celebrating there. Our partnership is not because we belong to Waypoint or we call ourselves Baptists. We, our partnership is because of Jesus and all that he's done for us by his death on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins and his powerful resurrection. Because we know that new life in Christ, you are my sister or my brother. When I was a young Christian, my wife Ruth and I, we were just going out and there was a, an older couple who really mentored us. Uh, they showed us so much love and support and helped us in our early days. They're now in their 80s. But a few years ago, when they were still in full-time work, they were running a church and I went and spent a weekend with them, uh, preaching and teaching in their church. On the Monday morning, they took me in the car to the station to travel home. And on the way there, Paul, the husband, said to me as we drove along, Ian, can I ask you a question? Yes, I said. Do you know that God loves you? The Lord really loves you? Yes, I said. Then he asked again, are you sure? Now I'm getting a bit puzzled, so I said, yes. I'm sure. But why are you asking me? He said, well, I've got the right to ask you because we go back so many years together. But he said, I'm asking you because I've discovered many people who are leaders and involved in Christian ministry, Christian service, are often doing it out of a sense of guilt or a sense of wanting God to love them. If they do things well, then God will love them. He said, I just want you never to forget that who you are in Christ matters and always let your ministry flow from that. I've thought often about what Paul said to me that day. He's absolutely right. We need to be secure in our identity in Christ, our calling in Christ, and to have that sense of assurance of our future in Christ. If you want a verse to reflect on, this coming week, however busy your life may be. Can I commend to you that little letter of Jude? It comes the last but one book in the New Testament, tucked away uh, just before you get to Revelation. Jude is such a tiny book, it doesn't even have chapters. But right at the start of the letter, Jude the writer says something which I think is worth meditating on. He says, to those who have been called who are loved by God the Father and kept by Jesus Christ. Three words there, called, loved, kept. I commend them to you this week to think about. What does it mean to be secure in Christ? Now the reason that's important for effective partnership is because you'll never effectively partner with others unless you're secure in your identity in Christ. You won't be able to nurture, delegate, grow people unless you're secure in your identity in Christ. If you're a leader, you won't be able to lead a church into health unless you're secure in your identity in Christ. 
and none of us will be appropriately used by God unless we are secure in our identity in Christ. See, partnership is rooted in who we are in Christ. It's not the fact that you've been given a title for a job that you do or that you've been around a, a particular church for a, several decades. It's because of who we are in Christ that we're able to effectively work with each other and alongside each other. Okay, that's the first lesson. It's based on the partnership with Jesus. The second lesson is it's nurtured through prayer. Uh, it's a bit like um, the garden. <laughs> you've, you've perhaps seen gardens that haven't been loved and looked after and they're, they're untended and they look unloved. But if you want to have a fruitful garden, you look after it. You put in the hard work, you, you do the weeding, you uh, put the fertilizer on the soil, you, you do everything you can to nurture and sustain its growth. And partnership is nurtured through prayer. Look back at the letter and uh, to the very beginning, chapter one again and verses nine to 11. Paul doesn't just tell them that he's praying for them, despite the fact he's in prison and, and can't travel to see them. But he goes on to say, this is what I'm praying. He says, this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Look at what he's praying for. He's praying for them to be able to press on. <laughs> he's praying for them to grow that their love will grow, uh, that their knowledge, their ability to make good decisions, to discern what's the best thing to do and may live fruitful lives of holiness, of righteousness before God. Sometimes we, we get stuck how to pray for people, don't we? I do sometimes. And I get caught in what I call the, the Vera Lynn prayers. Bless them all, bless them all. Uh, if you're old enough to remember that song. But there are times when it's helpful to pray scripture over people and for people. And I just suggest to you that if you're praying for your church family, for your biological family, or a friend that you know is in need and you're not quite sure how to pray, try turning Paul's prayer from verse 9 through to verse 11 into a prayer for them. Pray scripture into their lives. Paul prayed for his friends in Philippi. But I want you to notice it wasn't a one way street. They prayed for Paul. In verse 19 of chapter one, he, he says this. I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the spirit of Jesus Christ, that what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. So Paul knew that they were praying for them, praying for him in his imprisonment. One of their leaders, Epaphroditus, had gone to visit Paul and take some gifts. And he told him. The church at Philippi, whenever they gather, they're praying for you. And that's how it should be. I want to encourage you as a church, don't be a church that simply expects prayer from your leaders, but be a church that prays for your leaders. Pray for them by name. Pray for them often and pray for them 
asking for God to give them wisdom and insight as they serve among you. If you see a note in uh, in your notice sheet, in your bulletin, that talks about elders getting together or a staff meeting that's happening, use that as a reminder to pray for those who lead and serve among you. You see, really effective partnership is nurtured through prayer. In my experience in leading in local churches, I've learned three really important lessons about prayer. The first is to make sure as a leadership, prayer becomes a priority. And I've tried in churches where I've served to have meetings where leaders gather with nothing on the agenda, nothing to do with buildings or money. They're important things, but there's another meeting that that can be held for that. But simply to meet together to pray. Because for leaders to be effective and fruitful, we need to pray. Second lesson I've learned is about the value of prayer walking. And I'm sure many of you have done that. It's an amazing exercise, actually, just to forget the car, but just to walk around the neighbourhood, to walk around the familiar streets and just quietly be praying for the people who live in the houses, the children who attend that school, the teachers who serve there. To pray for our community, that the presence of Jesus may be known, that people in our community may come to know him. Prayer walking. And the third lesson is to pray with other Christians. I've found a great benefit in praying with other leaders of churches that aren't quite like our church, meeting together regularly to pray for one another. You see, prayer is a powerful weapon. And partnership is nurtured when God's people pray. Here's the third lesson. We thought about how partnership is based on Jesus. It's nurtured through prayer. And here's the challenging bit. Partnership will always, always, always be challenged by Satan. I want you to turn in your Bible, if you're following it in your Bible, to Um, the third chapter of Philippians, sorry, I'm getting lost here, fourth chapter of Philippians. And I want you to look at verse two. It's a puzzling little verse because it, it raises lots of questions without answering them. Let me read it to you. I plead with Euodia, that's a a lady's name, and I plead with Syntyche, that's another lady's name, to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women, since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers, whose names are in the book of life. Now I say that raises questions, because we're not quite sure what's going on. But we can surmise, and it seems that these two leading women may well have even been leaders in the church at Philippi, had fallen out with each other. We don't know what it was about. Uh, There's no clue in the text. But what we do know is that Paul honours them. He says, "They've, they've worked with me. They've contended at my side. They've been partners in ministry. But something's happened to block their partnership. And Paul says, I would ask you, my true companion. Actually, that could be the name of a person. Sidious, 
true companion was actually a name. So he may have been speaking to somebody in the church who he knew had leadership authority. And what Paul's trying to deal with here is an enemy attack. Some of us are old enough to remember how air raid sirens would go off in the dark days of World War II. And what would you do? Well, immediately you'd seek a place of shelter. And if you like, Philippians 4 verse 2 is a kind of an air raid warning. Paul is saying this could potentially lead to a serious split. What was it about? We don't know. And it doesn't really matter. But notice what Paul says. He says, I urge you to be of the same mind in the Lord. And it's possible to be of the same mind in the Lord without agreeing on every detail. Think for a moment about marriage. <laughs> Often in marriage, partners find things difficult. They find things challenging. I want to do it this way. They want to do it that way. But for marriages that really work and flourish, we, we learn to give and we learn to take. We learn compromise. We learn that my way is not the only way. My way of seeing things is not the only way of seeing things. And what Paul is really saying here to his friends, I see an alarm bell. I see a, a, an air raid siren that if you don't deal with this, it could grow into something big. Now, I wonder if that makes sense for you of the most famous passage in, in Philippians. We're going to read it from chapter two and verse one. Just imagine you're part of that church family where there are tensions, where people have fallen out. You've got some on the side of Euodia, some on the side of Syntyche, some who are, are on either side think they both ought to apologise and put things right. And then you've got the fourth group. They're the folk who haven't got a clue what's going on, and they exist in every church, believe me. But just imagine you're part of that congregation where there's tension, even when you meet together for communion or for prayer. Listen to chapter 2 and verse 1. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. Ouch. That's what I'd feel. In a church that was riven by tension, division, rivalry, what a challenge that is from Paul, their founding pastor. But then he goes on in perhaps the most famous passage in the whole of this letter. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself 
by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. <laughs> what a wonderful, wonderful song of praise that is. And by the way, it was a song of praise. If you look in your Bible, it's probably set out a bit like a, a quotation because we believe Paul is quoting an early Christian hymn that set out something of the doctrine, the truth about who Jesus was, the fact he came to be the saviour of the world by dying on the cross and the place that he has now exalted to the right hand of the Father. It's a wonderful expression of Christian truth, which believers in the early days would gather, they would sing as part of their worship services. And Paul is saying, remember the gospel, remember Jesus, remember his humility, his servanthood, and make sure you apply that in your everyday relationships. Euodia, Syntyche, those of you who are part of this argument, whatever caused it, remember Jesus and practice humility. Satan's going to challenge unity in any church at any time. He is going to always uh, try and bring division, especially when a church has been growing, when good things have been happening in people's lives, when a community is being influenced for the gospel and people are coming to know Christ. Satan will attack. And often he'll attack through the most trivial situations, arguments that have got out of hand because people won't say sorry and, and apologize. Look again at chapter one and verse 27 and verse 28. Paul says, whatever happens, whether I'm released from prison and come and see you again or not, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. I wonder if he had in his mind a picture of the Roman legions when they used to march together. They'd be besieging a city and, you know, they were famous for their long shields that would cover from head to foot. And often when they were besieging a city, they would link their shields together and move forward as one man, as a fighting machine, as a kind of first century virtue version of a tank. He's saying you need to stand together because if you don't, you will fall. I think there's a real challenge there to us as we think about partnership. Never take it for granted. Don't look and say, isn't it wonderful to see so many people in our church, so many people being baptised when we're able to meet together, to see their car park full. Those are good signs of God's blessing. But always be aware that Satan will seek to attack. There's a famous uh, saying attributed to, to various people, including Thomas Jefferson, that says, eternal vigilance is the price of liberty. 
eternal vigilance. Be on your guard. James, in his little letter, uh, says this, James chapter 1, verse 19, everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. That's a very important message for effective partnership in the local church. And I think if James was writing today, he'd also say, use email sparingly. Some time ago, I came across uh, an acrostic based on the word think. I try and use it as a reminder to think before I speak, to think before I react, to think because I write that email. Each one of those letters stands for something. Think, T, true. H, helpful. I, inspiring. N, necessary. K, kind. If it helps me to stop. Is what I'm about to say or write true? Is it helpful? Is it inspiring? Is it necessary? Is it kind? You'll be aware this week of a famous interview where words were expressed, were shared. And we realise that words can often bring damage to relationships, to families. They build walls. But thankfully, words can also heal. Words like, I'm sorry. Please forgive me. Can we start again? So three important reminders about partnership. It's based on our relationship with the Lord Jesus. It's nurtured through prayer. And it will be challenged by Satan, which means that we need to stand alert. Now, you've got three members of the Waypoint family who are currently studying here at Moreland's College, where I teach. You have uh, Bev Price. Harry, Harry Pearson, and our newest student, Kathy Madavan. Kathy's joined us on the MA programme here. They will know that one of the lovely things about Morelands College is we are in an idyllic location, 13 acres of beautiful parkland just on the edge of the New Forest. I live here on site with my wife, Ruth. And one of the features we've noticed in the nearly 14 years that we've lived here is uh, the geese that live on one side of the college and yet like to hang out during the day on the other side of the college. You see, they nest, they roost at night on the other side of the, the River Avon. But on the other side of the college, there is a fishing lake and they love to spend the daytime feeding around the lake. And what that means is that every morning at a certain time as the sun comes up, we will hear them flying overhead and making an absolute racket as they honk. And then in the evening, when they decide that they've had enough and they want to settle back to their nests, they fly back over again, always in formation and always making a noise. We've got used to it, but often people visiting the college will look up and say, what on earth is that? Some time ago, I came across a uh, Something written by a man called John Adair, who is a, a leading writer and thinker on leadership and management. And he wrote about what he called the wisdom of geese. Let me read you some of what he said. 
geese fly in formation, that V shape, technically known as a wedge or a skein. By flapping their wings together, it creates an uplift and that V formation adds something like 70% greater flying range than if a goose flew alone. When one goose falls out of formation, it experiences drag and resistance and it gets back into formation fast because it knows that flying with the others gives it a lifting power. When the lead goose tires, it drops back in formation and another goose takes point position. And that noise, <laughs> the geese flying honk from behind to encourage the leaders to keep up their speed. And listen to this. When a goose is sick, wounded or slows down, two geese will drop out of the formation and follow to help and protect it. They stay with it until it can fly again or dies. They then launch out on their own with another formation and try perhaps otherwise to catch up with the rest of the flock. And the reason Adair uses that is he wants to remind us about the power of synergy, working together, partnership. I quoted that in a church where I was uh, part of the leadership team. And uh, I went home after the morning service, had a quick bite of lunch, and then I was going out to visit somebody in the afternoon. Uh, when I opened the front door, there on the doorstep was a bottle of wine, and on it was a post-it note. And the post-it note just simply said, honk, honk. Really, there was somebody who'd listened to the sermon that morning and decided that the pastor needed some encouragement. And that's my thought for you this week. Very simply, go out and demonstrate partnership and remind yourself with those two words. Honk, honk. God bless you.